0: Hello, everybody, and thank you for joining us again on the PCICS podcast, the go-to podcast for pediatric cardiac critical care and the official podcast of the Pediatric Cardiac Intensive Care Society. Today's episode is a very special episode. Um, It's going to be one of our news talk episodes, which, as you know, we discuss current events in the world of pediatric cardiac critical care. I'm David Warho. I am one of the former executive producers of the podcast, and I am a cardiac intensivist at Rady Children's Hospital in San Diego. I'm going to have my other Uh, hosts, co-hosts, introduce themselves, and then we'll have our guests introduce
1: themselves. Hi, I'm Lillian Sue. I'm one of the current executive producers of the podcast and the medical director here at Phoenix Children's of the CBICU.
2: Hi, my name is Sadie Rodriguez. I'm a pediatric cardiac intensivist in Atlanta at Children's Healthcare of Atlanta, Emory University. Thanks for letting me join
0: Great. Thank you all for joining as co-hosts. And before we have our guests introduce themselves, I'll briefly mention that the topic of today's episode is the new recommendations for centers performing pediatric heart surgery in the United States, which the Congenital Heart Surgeon Society has put together. And the manuscript was published online in the World Journal for Pediatric and Congenital Heart Surgery this past month. So we are very privileged to have uh, some of the authors of this very uh, lofty and large uh, manuscript. Join us today to answer some questions about the document. Uh, Dr. Backer, do you want to go first?
3: Sure. Uh, my name is Carl Backer, and I'm uh, the chief of pediatric cardiac surgery at Kentucky Children's Hospital. Uh, and I work in the uh, joint program with Cincinnati Children's Hospital. So I'm also a professor of uh, cardiac surgery at Cincinnati Children's. Uh, and we have what we call uh, one program with two sites. So I operate both at Kentucky Children's, and Cincinnati Children's.
4: Hello, everybody. i um, John Costello. I'm a pediatric cardiac intensivist at the Medical University of South Carolina. I also serve as the vice chair for clinical research for our Department of Pediatrics, and I'm a past president of the Pediatric Cardiac Intensive Care Society.
0: And I will preface this episode by just saying that the Pediatric Cardiac Intensive Care Society was one of the I think 15 uh, societies that uh, endorsed this work product. And obviously these are broad and sweeping recommendations. So uh, obviously uh, they touch on all of our lives and all the things that we do in pediatric cardiac critical care. So my first question for our guests is why? Uh, This is uh, obviously a very huge undertaking to put together this document. For our listeners, if you have not seen it or read it yet, it is, uh, I think, what, 30 pages or so. <laughs> so um, what was the impetus uh, for putting this together?
3: I think that uh, the, the last time any kind of uh, recommendations for congenital heart surgery centers was from the American Academy of Pediatrics nearly 20 years ago. And obviously a lot has changed since then. The other thing is that there's uh, now with, um, The ability for us to look at the STS uh, reports, which are very comprehensive, uh, and we've recently, you know, we've been recognizing over the last several years that there's a significant variation in outcomes at different centers uh, with uh, operative mortality ranging from, you know, 2 to 5% length of stay ranging from 10 to 20 days uh, and major complications again from like 5% to 20%. So it seemed like there's a pretty large variation in outcomes in the United States and the idea behind this initiative was to try to uh, narrow that gap and uh, eliminate that variation and try to improve the outcomes at some of the uh, centers that it seems like other centers are able to achieve.
4: Yeah, I certainly agree with all that. And I think uh, another part of this initiative was to help leaders from in pediatric heart centers work with their administrators to garner the resources that are needed to care for this complex patient population. So as we're going to discuss, there are a number of recommendations in this document about uh, different structures, processes, and outcome measures that we believe that all pediatric uh, heart programs in the United States should uh, either have or strive to to obtain. And and we hope this resource will be uh, helpful for our leaders in various heart centers to advocate uh, for those resources on behalf of their patients and uh, the clinicians that work in their heart centers.
1: I was just gonna follow up with some data that I'm just gonna quote Directly from the article, because I I do think it's pretty fascinating, some of the statistics that you guys talk about. So, you specifically talk about this less than 3% overall mortality, and yet in the highest complexity lesions, early mortality remains upwards of 10 to 15%, with nearly a third experiencing a major complication. And then I think the other statistic that I found really interesting, which I know you guys will talk about and we'll touch upon because volume is such a big issue, but I was actually quite surprised to see how high-volume centers, those defined as doing greater than 350 index cases a year, were only 17% of all the centers. And then those doing 250 to 349 were 18%, and there are actually 44% of centers doing less than 150 cases a year um yeah so I I found I found all of those statistics quite fascinating. I'm sure we're gonna talk um, a little bit about that so there's a lot of lots of lots of data to get through and I'm sure as you guys talk about getting the right team together to make sure as you come up with these guidelines you have the right people on board, what went through your minds as you thought about who to ask to participate in this? Whose voice did you want to make sure was represented and why?
3: You know, so when when Dr. Duraney uh, was the uh, president of the Congenital Heart Surgeon Society, he organized a retreat that occurred in the summer of 2019. And at that time, we discussed some of the long-term goals and objectives for the Congenital Heart Surgeon Society. And at that point, it was recommended that we put together a committee to uh, study um, uh, potential recommendations for guidelines for congenital heart surgery centers. Um, Dr. Tweddle, who, uh, you know, as we all know, uh, giant in congenital heart surgery, who recently died about a year and a half ago, uh, he uh, formed the uh, committees to uh, start this. And uh, we began having our uh, meetings in march of 2021 so we had uh what we did was we set up so dr pasquale and i were the two leads and we set up twice a month one hour zoom meetings that started in march of 21 and went through april of 2022 and we had um 30 uh different committee members from 13 different societies and we tried to have a uh, a diverse representation across uh, program size and geography and uh the the principles that Dr. Tweddle uh, emphasized were that we would have a, a balanced, practical approach. Uh, we would try to work within the realities of our current healthcare system. Uh, focus on developing really consensus and broad areas of agreement, and we wanted to avoid unintended consequences like uh, reduced access to care. So we do have uh, we had several experts on healthcare disparities in the work group. Uh, We had centers from all, you know, small volume centers, medium volume centers, large volume centers. Uh, We specifically did not intend for this to be a plan that would regionalize care to a few large centers. Uh, We also decided that, we, you know, this is not, these are not requirements. They're not uh, criteria for certification. You know, these are recommendations that uh, have been endorsed by, again, I think it's now 15 different societies. So that's kind of a little bit of the background. We also, um, uh, when we were formulating this, we looked at, you know, the American College of Surgeons has put forward recommendations for pediatric surgeons, and they have a a system of level one, level two, and level three. I think we're all familiar with the um, neonatal units that have different levels of care. And then also uh, the Europeans have put together their, what they call the optimal structure of a, congenital heart surgery department that was published in 2003. So some of this was, uh, we looked at the models from other other uh, organizations, pediatric surgery, neonatology, and the Europeans.
4: There was a really a, a focus up there to make sure there was multidisciplinary representation on the different work groups that were put together. So obviously our cardiac surgeons were a very uh, critical and important piece of this project, just that like they are in our congenital heart surgery programs but we think we all recognize that, that uh, taking care of this complex patient population is a team sport. So in addition to cardiac surgeons, there were cardiac intensivist, um, heart failure transplant specialist, interventional cardiologist, perfusionist, um, imaging experts, and so on, all of the various uh, key disciplines in our field that are uh, integrally involved in caring for patients who are being evaluated for cardiac surgery, undergoing cardiac surgery, and then recovering from uh, uh, cardiac surgery. So, it uh, I think the multidisciplinary and multi-societal nature of the project uh, was important in developing these, uh, what are truly consensus uh, recommendations.
3: And then just to throw in there, we also had a, a stakeholder comment period where we uh, sent uh, these uh, out to patients and parent groups for their um, input uh, prior, you know, to the final publication.
2: That's really impressive. I Reading the paper, it was striking how sort of intentional it does come across of wanting to be so broad-reaching across so many specialties and disciplines. And I reading through, I had a similar um, curiosity, if about half of the programs were sort of a smaller volume programs, how did you approach that? So thank you for giving us that insight of the thought process and intentionality behind just building the collaboration and planning how these discussions were going to take place across the nation. I think that's really insightful. So now that the group has been made and these, the months and months of these work groups and conversations, um, this is quite a huge feat that's quite in-depth and and sort of broad sweeping. If our listeners are quite broad audience, you know, from trainees to sort of senior in career and across specialties, are there any um, sort of key takeaways that you would want our listeners to come across with um, from from this first introduction into Mm -hmm the recommendations?
3: Well, um, I mean, I think that the main strokes are that we recommend in general terms that there probably should be two types of centers, two tiers of care. One, essential care centers that um, provide essential services, fundamental components for really any pediatric heart surgery program.
1: And then there should also
3: be comprehensive care centers, which are centers that have the um, highest complexity care um, and offer complete comprehensive care. And then within those two groups, that there's collaboration between the two. So I, I often look at the current situation that I have here at Kentucky Children's with Cincinnati Children. So in Kentucky, we Probably care for about 90% of the patients that, you know, come into our geographic area here at this hospital. But then about 10% of the patients that are high complexity, for example, uh, uh, neonates that require, you know, open heart surgery, patients that require transplant, VAD, complex electrophysiology, uh, complex trans catheter, those patients we send up to Cincinnati and we have a great working relationship between the two of us, where we have joint conferences, and they are able to give us input into what we should be doing with our patients. And then uh, we are able to uh, use their expertise when we do see, you know, patients that are complex. But we certainly don't have the bandwidth here at Kentucky Children's Hospital to say to be doing Norwood operations and transplants uh, and other high acuity type. Uh, um, uh, procedures.
4: I, I think one of the interesting issues about uh, this recommendation for having essential and comprehensive centers. I mean somebody may ask, why not just regionalize the care and have everything done at, at larger centers? And I think there are a couple of things that our group discussed when we were uh, coming up with this model. and, and one uh, important issue was obviously access to access to care. And um, it would certainly, not in all, but in many instances, um, significantly increase uh, driving times, uh, create stress for families and and potentially undue burdens to have to travel long distances in order to get to a very large uh, heart center when um, uh, high-level care can be uh, provided more regionally. Uh, So that was one important issue is access to care. And, And then the other you know, issue centers on the um, realities of the healthcare system that we all work here in here in the United States, which differs um, uh, from other countries where, you know, healthcare dollars can be distributed or distributed more centrally. Um, In in the United States, there's a a wide variety of different payers, in addition to the um, uh, Medicare uh, program for children and for if if care was uh, completely regionalized in large centers, that would have an important adverse impact on some of the uh, on a large number of children's hospitals who are, I think, dependent financially for their existence on the presence of a pediatric card program, which is one of the as we all know, it, it, you know, financially important for children's hospitals. So, and uh, you know, obviously, if again, if the care was regionalized and services went away at some of, uh, of the Children's hospitals that had smaller cardiac programs, that could have an adverse impact not only in the cardiac patient population, but also on uh, children with uh, many other non-cardiac disease processes. So um, that was how we ultimately arrived at this two different types of centers model, the essential model and the comprehensive larger centers.
1: Just to follow up, John, on that concept, just for our listeners to be clear, So when you read the paper, my understanding is that you guys are advocating that the highest complexity patients go to these comprehensive care centers, which could be interpreted as a form of regionalization. Would that be accurate? And in your mind, how is that different than advocating for regionalization in general?
3: Well, I think there's a a subtle difference there. I think the subtle difference is that you know the high complexity. It doesn't go good for a high complexity neonate to die at a small center that doesn't have the capabilities to take care of that patient. Um, I think one of the things that the the manuscript does is is uh, if you want to be a comprehensive care center, I think. And th- again, this is where we got consensus agreement from 15 different organizations. There are certain uh, components, you know, and John talked about the structure and the process to deliver a good outcome. And um, the, the the manuscript outlines what kind of physical facilities, staffing, technology you need to have, you know, the structure, uh, the process, the way care is delivered, the, the, the specialists that you have on site. Those are the things that we think are necessary to have good outcomes in those patients. So, we do talk about you know the number of the volume of patients but it's also important the facilities and the people that you have to take care of these patients so i think it's a uh, it's a false hope to think that you know a very small volume center can do complex neonatal surgery and have good results and uh, it's so much better for those patients to go to a a center that will have a good outcome so you know for example the arterial switch operation you have a good outcome from that operation, it's a lifetime, you know, but they can have a, you know, a long, healthy life versus a patient that has a, you know, an arterial switch operation that goes bad, and then they have a coronary problem, and they have myocardial infarction, and they end up, you know, then getting transferred somewhere for a transplant. I mean, there's so many stories like that, that, and that's what we're trying to avoid.
4: And I think something that the cardiac intensivist in the audience can relate to. One of the things we thought were, was important was to have a dedicated cardiac ICU service at these comprehensive centers uh, to provide care for, for the most complex patients. As you can imagine, uh, the staffing that goes into that, the need for 24 seven in-house attending coverage, it, it's simply be, uh, is not feasible to replicate that just as one example. But also the perfusion service, the the level of uh, interventional cardiology expertise, uh, the heart failure transplant specialist at every uh, single program across the country, including uh, smaller programs that just aren't going to have the bandwidth to support the level of expertise they need to achieve uh, the best outcomes uh, for for those most complicated. Patients, so yeah, Lily. It is fair to say that it is we are recommending those referral patterns. But I think the the other important thing that we really emphasized in the document was the need for collaboration between these essential and uh, comprehensive centers, with the idea that 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 sort of collaboration would lift all boats. Um, There could be shared resources and times with. uh, personnel, cross-coverage, quality improvement efforts, multidisciplinary discussion for um, cases that are being considered for cardiac surgery, uh, and so on. So it's certainly, we're not proposing that these are, send our function independently, but rather there's a strong partnership, a formal partnership between the uh, essential centers and the comprehensive centers that, Should benefit everybody: the hospitals, the clinicians who work there, and most importantly, the patients and their families.
1: Yeah, I don't think you can argue about the data about experience. So experience clearly matters. Volume clearly matters. And regionalization, I think, in the hub and spoke model, is controversial. And I think was even a pro con in this last PCICs, if I remember correctly. So it's. admirable that you guys would go ahead and make that recommendation. And it's also admirable that you actually got the input of a diverse array of centers. And Dr. Backer, you yourself are at one of these centers that does refer your higher complexity patients to a higher volume center like Cincinnati. I was curious as to, you, you had said that this paper actually went to parents beforehand. I was curious to what Their response was to that aspect of the paper, if they commented at all on that, since clearly, like you said, their lives are going to be impacted with this recommendation to go to a larger center that could be quite far away and disruptive, and quite disruptive to their lives, even more so than having a child who needs urgent heart surgery.
3: Well, I would say in general they were pretty much unanimously supportive. We jotted down a few of their uh, remarks. One, uh, These updated recommendations are absolutely necessary for the care of congenital heart disease patients. Was one parent, uh, so needed in the field. Was another comment. Another comment was a valuable document which will benefit patients and families and lead to improved outcomes. Um, we also, you know, had feedback from the. Uh, Uh, Children's Hospital Association, and they said, um, your efforts have great promise for continued improvement as a national pediatric community. We are fully prepared to continue supporting your progress. Uh, The level of effort, expertise, and care in your work is evident. So I I think that, I mean, it was pretty positive uh, feedback, I I would say.
0: Yeah, it's always great to hear uh, uh, when the families and and, uh, their organizations are supportive. And it's incredibly clear how much thought and intentionality went into the process of creating this document. So uh, for our listeners uh, who don't know sort of what goes on behind the scenes, obviously, as uh, Dr. Becker mentioned, there was a comment period from patients and families, but there was also a, a period of review and comment from all the various organizations that ultimately ended up endorsing this work product. And um, as you know, a member of the PCICS Executive Committee and the board, uh, we had some healthy uh, debate about volume. Um, myself being at a center that is just below the threshold for uh, the volume cutoff for comprehensive care, but that has incredibly good outcomes, I was a little skeptical. But I, I would like to hear, and I'd like for our listeners um, to hear, sort of the thought process and the data and how these volume thresholds were ultimately chosen
3: as you might imagine this is a, a source of a lot of discussion among our committee too and frankly there were um, uh, individuals that thought that so so the the numbers that we recommend as a minimum for a comprehensive center is 200 uh index STS index cases per year and for essential services 75 uh, STS index cases per year there were pe- groups that thought that number should you know, for that should be much higher and some that thought it should be lower. Uh, we, we thought at the end of the day that we had to have a number, some something to hang our hats on. And um, I think that the um, one of the things that came out of this, which was actually uh, quite um, timely, was that at the very beginning, we thought, well, the data that we have, um, the, the Welke paper published uh, about uh 10, 12 years ago is now set a 200, was the kind of the inflection point where the mortality, you know, less than 200 index cases, there was an inflection point, was a significant spot where the mortality went up. We thought we should repeat this study with the current data. So what we did was uh, during the year and a half, two years that we were, you know, putting this all together. At the same time, uh, Dr. Welke and the STS group were studying the new data, and that manuscript has just come out. It's published online. Uh, and again, the inflection point was 200 index cases per year. So we have uh, data from previously and current data that would indicate that that is a, a point at which uh, the mortality goes up. And there's also, a, you know, very um, Convincing evidence from the European database, where they looked at the mortality of neonates undergoing neonatal heart surgery, and if you uh, you know kind of do the math and the percent of cases that um, are neonates, again, 200 cases uh, a year is the uh, inflection point. So we had to have a number. There's a lot of data to support this, and there's current data to support it. So that was the rationale for the 200 cases. Um, The Rationale for the 75 cases for essential services, um, there's a couple of things. One is, coincidentally, that's the the number that that, uh, pediatric cardiac surgeons who want to, you know, are certified by the American Board of Thoracic Surgery need to do 75 cases per year. If you're a pediatric heart surgeon, to recertify in the American Board of Thoracic Surgery, you need 50 cases per year. Um, So if you have a two-surgeon program, uh, you know, you can go, you know, figure out who's going to do uh, which cases, but uh, during a two-year period, each of you has to, uh, you know, uh, uh, accumulate fifty index cases. There's also uh, there are some states that are uh, contemplating uh, uh, volume minimums for pediatric cardiac surgery centers that are going to be funded by the state Medicaid, and I don't want to say what state that is, but in a, one of the states, seventy-five uh, cases was the number that they had selected as the minimum they were not going to plan on funding Medicaid funding for a program if they had less than 75 index cases. So that's a little bit of the rationale behind those uh, behind those numbers.
4: John, do you want to and
3: chime in on, on that?
4: A, a practical perspective, if a program is doing 75 cases a year, that means that many weeks of the year, there's going to be more than one cardiac surgical case coming through the ICU. So not only, you know, thinking about the surgical expertise and the expertise of the operating room staff like dr backer was alluding to but also for the uh team in, in the in the intensive pediatric intensive care unit or cardiac intensive care unit in order to ma- uh, maintain competency for the nursing staff and the respiratory therapist and the intensivist um there was some thought that again this is a little bit more based on expert opinion that having at least one to two cases a week most weeks Should help maintain that uh, some standard level of competency.
0: Now that it's out there and the recommendations are published and publicly available, my next question is: uh, It's kind of a two-pronged question. What is your hope for these recommendations and how they impact the care of children with congenital and acquired heart disease in the United States? How do you want them to be used? And even more importantly, how do you not want them to be used?
3: Wow, those are tough questions. Um, I start by saying I was just at the, uh, you know, the Congenital Heart Surgery Society. We just had our 50th anniversary meeting in Boston last week, and several cardiac congenital heart surgeons came up to me and said they, you know, thanked us for putting this together because they were going to go to their administration and say, you know, this is what 15 different endorsing societies feel is necessary for a congenital heart surgery program. And I've been trying to get and just make an example, you know, we want to be a member of PC4, and they don't want to pay for it. Um, now, you know, this document says that if you want to be a comprehensive center, you should be a, a PC4 should be something that you're an, involved with. Uh, because it's been shown that just being a member increase, uh, improves your outcomes. So they can go to their administration and say, this is what we need. Um, that, you know, we've, we think that uh, every heart center should have a dedicated pediatric cardiac OR pediatric cardiac OR team i mean some places have had trouble you know getting their administration to agree to that i mean you, you know you have to have a 24/7 on call you know nursing staff for a pedi- to to staff a pediatric cardiac OR they can go to their administration and say look this is you know i i know we've been asking for this but now you know the national organizations are saying this is what you should have if you want to have a congenital heart surgery center. Those are just a couple of examples. I think, John, you can comment on, you know, for the, the pediatric intensivists. I think we have uh, language in there about how many patients a uh, 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 intensivist or an NP group should care for. Uh, some of the other recommendations uh, down that, you know, along those lines.
4: Yeah, exactly. I'm sure the. Cardiac intensivist and our nurse practitioners, in particular, will be interested in our recommendations about staffing ratio and what's a safe number of patients for a front line provider to care for. How many patients during the daytime is is reasonable for a cardiac intensivist? And we really did our best to justify uh, those recommendations with published data when we can. So they're to the best of our ability. These recommendations are not just expert opinion, but based on published data. Um, we also um, included some recommendations about um, efforts to maintain an experienced bedside nursing staff I, I mean all of us know and and cardiac surgeons can certainly appreciate it how important it is when they come back from the operating room to see one of the nurse who's been working in the icu for 10 15 20 years is taking care of that fragile post-operative neonate i think that's a relief to the cardiac surgeon um, we know as cardiac intensivists, that's important as well. So encouraging heart centers, there's language in there that would you know, encourage heart centers to make investments to have an experienced bedside nursing staff. And uh, that, that's well justified by data that Patty Hickey and others have um, published about relationships, uh, independent risk-adjusted relationships between uh, bedside nursing experience and outcomes after pediatric cardiac surgery. Yeah, lots of interesting uh, factoids and, and statistics as uh, Lillian mentioned, and uh, recommendations that I think will be helpful uh, for all sorts of leaders in heart centers and, uh, you know staff to consider debate and, and uh, advocate for resources that are needed to care for these patients.
1: Yeah, so to give the listeners some data in case they don't have time to read the 37-page document, (laughs) I think it was because I haven't printed a journal article in a very long time because I usually just read it off my computer. But this one, I knew you guys were being on this podcast, so I did print it. And it was, yeah, I believe it's 37 pages. And that's not even with the references. But um, so specifically, you recommend that a daytime attending have not more than 15 patients on their team. And then I thought this recommendation for bedside nursing staff greater than 80% of them should have greater than two years of experience, which I have to tell you for my own unit here at Phoenix um, and the other units that I've worked with, that that's going to be a struggle. And so I love that you actually put in that specific recommendation because I think so often human infrastructure is neglected or less... When hospital administrators think about how to build an ICU or a program, they often think about all of the equipment, right? And the human infrastructure part, I think, is is less thought of. And so having these specific numbers, I think, is going to be helpful. One of the follow-ups to that And just in general with the guidelines that I had was, as I read through them, thinking about my own unit, we certainly have some work to do to make sure that we can become one of these comprehensive centers that fulfills all of the recommendations. I was wondering if either of you, as you wrote these, did you have specific units in mind that actually do all of these recommendations already, or was this mostly aspirational that you hope in five to ten years, the large majority of centers that do greater than 200 200 cases a year, in fact, can say confidently that they can follow all of your recommendations to the T.
4: I don't know that we have data as to how if we did a cross-sectional survey right now, I don't know that we have data as to how many centers. who would fall within these two buckets, the comprehensive and essential uh, would meet all of these criteria right now. So I, I suspect that for many programs, there are areas and opportunities for improvement based on these recommendations. I suspect there are some centers who, who do largely meet meet all of these criterias. Um, but I suspect the majority, for the majority, there are some opportunities of, for improvement. Uh, When we were having our discussions, we tried to avoid the pitfall of lowering the bar, so to speak, to make it fit with what happens at and what infrastructure exists at the centers of the authors, but rather tried to focus on what the collective group thought as a consensus opinion should exist in a pediatric heart center in the United States so there are certainly things at my own center for example that do not quite meet the criteria listed or the recommendations i should say listed uh, to be a comprehensive program one example is we still uh, our cardiac intensivist are still on our home call model uh, we stay in the hospital when we need to when babies are sick but there are some nights like last night when i was on call uh, the unit was under control and i left late in the evening and went home that does not fit with the, the recommendations that we published and we talked about that quite a bit with our cardiac icu subgroup and again with the the larger author group uh, during several of our phone calls and we decided that re- that our opinion was as a national group of experts that there should be in-house uh, cardiac icu coverage by attending physician at the at these comprehensive centers so th- i think there are opportunities for many centers to review this document carefully, um, look for areas of, of uh, for improvement for their own centers and uh, work with their administrators to accomplish those goals. And some of these things may not be achievable overnight, but I think it'd be a good idea to have a strategy and maybe a timeline to achieve them. You touched on the nursing issue as well. There's, those recommendations were not expert opinion. Those are based on Patty Hickey's data, and uh, supported by good data that, that ner- level of nursing experience is associated with uh, lower mortality and better outcomes after um, pediatric cardiac surgery. Uh, we know that's aspirational in the current era, particularly after the pandemic and the, the nursing sh- shortage that many adult and children's hospitals are experiencing these days and, and the turnover, uh, but we would encourage institutions to be mindful of that the relationship between expertise and outcomes, and make the changes that are needed uh, to retain nurses and and develop that experience. Right. I think that
3: you know the retaining personnel is very important, and I think that you know that's one of the reasons that 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 statement is in there. I think we also have statements in there that you know if you don't have that, you should try to have a uh, plan to educate nurses and and try to get to that level. Um, But I think it also goes back to why we, we, you know, when we, why we have two sets of recommendations. You know, it seems like a single set of recommendations was either going to be too lax, not meaningful, or too stringent and not practical. So that's why we sort of tried to thread the needle with the, you know, essential care versus comprehensive.
2: Yeah, I wanted to return back to some of your thoughts about with the recommendations being out. And sort of the buzz and conversation about how to use them practically, aspirationally, goal setting, et cetera. Some of the um, examples that we brought up before were more so focused on institutional practice, for example, um, restructuring numbers of patients on a team or call structure, investing in our, our resources, our staffing, our human infrastructure, as Lillian had mentioned earlier, and the sequelae of the recommendations at an institutional level. And I wanted to also pick your brain about what do you think or do you think there will be any changes beyond the institution, sort of how institutions collaborate with each other, maintaining that balance between keeping up volume, skill, professional development with the referral, and I guess financial implications as well with referrals as sort of the next kind of layer. And then beyond that, sort of a more broad sweeping question of, do you think there will be further implications just on a national level of insurance approval of certain complexity cases at certain centers, or sort of any other um, anticipated changes that you could foresee or hope for?
4: We have several goals in in that regard. One is to, is to have broad awareness amongst the field and uh, stakeholders, including hospital administrators. Um, parent organizations and families uh, about these recommendations and one way to get the word out is through podcasts uh, like uh, this one which is has many thousands of uh, listeners for every episode um, the uh, we certainly do hope that at the end of the day the goal of all this is obviously to Im- improve care for as many uh, patients with congenital heart disease as, as we possibly can we are hopeful that, that those efforts can come within the community, and otherwise, we um, I think we as a field will make better decisions if we can make these decisions ourselves and provide structure around our program, uh, advocate for resources, and do the best we can to adhere to these recommendations and guidelines rather than having external forces Im- impose decisions Upon us. I mean, we're the experts as a profession. It's our responsibility to to shape our field and our and our programs in a way that's optimal for patient care. So I think that would be our our primary hope. I think it will be interesting and and perhaps an unknown at this point whether other important players in this space, such as third party payers, will be motivated to change policy and. um Help, I'd say regulate. Perhaps for a better lack of word, you know, programs that that are unable to meet the core spirit of these recommendations. That it's unlike a uh, Medicare population, for example, um, where there's a single payer for for many adults who are over age 65 in this country, and and uh, policies can be negotiated and. Uh, implemented by a single payer that impacts a very large number of people, or certainly in other countries where there's a single payer healthcare system. In the United States, for children, that's certainly not the case. So it's it's, it's a lot of actors in that space that that would um, need to come on board, but that, that I think would be helpful uh, to the cause. But I think the most important thing is for clinicians in our field, and particularly the leaders in our field, and the, and the hospital administrators that we partner with to carefully consider these de- guidelines in the context of, of individual programs and, and building relationships with, with other programs, comprehensive and essential centers to make this work. I think that would be the most successful approach and, and certainly a hope of the authorship group of this project. Okay.
1: So if I remember correctly, you guys talked about having every other week meetings in order to accomplish this paper. So again, I just want to congratulate you on the enormous amount of work that went into getting these published and all of the thought that probably had to go into getting people to not only align themselves into a, A common mission, but also getting all of these endorsements from such a wide variety of professional societies. So now that it's out there and it's published, what do you feel like are the next steps necessary so that we can, in fact, translate this to better care at the bedside? And are there hopes of affecting things like US News and World Report in in some sort of way or other things like that?
3: Well, I just, first of all, I want to say um, we did, I mean, it was really an interesting uh, basically year and a half of meetings uh, and a lot of debate back and forth by a lot of very smart people uh, dedicated to taking care of kids with congenital heart disease. The other thing I will say is that when we sent this out to the different organizations for endorsement, uh, I, I was very appreciative that there were some very detailed analyses of what we had Originally written, and then some of it was actually changed uh, in 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 minor fashions that I think really improved the uh, final document. Um, and in particular, the Pediatric Cardiac Intensive Care Society I had a lot of conversations with David Cooper, who you all know, uh, and several other individuals. Uh, the other group that really helped us was the American Academy of Pediatrics, uh, that we thought it was very important that that the American Academy of Pediatrics endorses because they're probably the largest single organization that uh, has endorsed us. As far as what the next steps are, I think now, you know, we need to sort of sit back and see how this is received by, uh, by the public, by the payers, by the institutions. Uh, and one of the uh, things that's in the document, but the Congenital Heart Surgeon Society um, is has set up a, uh a group of uh, surgeons, and we uh, probably at, at some point will uh, have to, we will include uh, senior uh, uh, cardiologists um, to, uh, we've made a commitment that the programs are not able to maintain um, their SDS overall program ODE ratio, you know, within the 95% confidence intervals to be as expected or better than expected. For their specific case mix that we would offer a voluntary CHSS program review to try to uh, go to that program and try to figure out, you know, what is going on that is not keeping them from achieving those goals and try to help them. Uh, So the, you know, the the idea is not that this would be punitive, but that we would, programs would accept the fact that they're not doing well, that, you know, something, you know, there must be something that we can help them with. um, and uh, so that that is in the process of being developed. So that's that's something that's a next step that's in, in process right now.
0: Perfect. Well, I look forward to seeing the future of our field and the impact mm-hmm. of the collaboration that I hope comes out of this document. Uh, I want to thank both uh, Dr. Becker and Dr. Costello for joining us on the podcast. It was really great to hear about all the thought process that went into this. And I hope that our listeners have learned a lot. Uh, To all of our listeners, thank you for joining us again on the PCICS podcast for this edition of News Talk. Please don't forget to subscribe for the podcast on Apple Podcasts, iHeart, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And please visit our website, PCICS.org, to find out about how to become a member and access resources, educational offerings, job listings, and much more. The song I Don't Know by Grapes was used under a Creative Commons 3.0 attribution license.